This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 15th, 2013. The Gospel is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. The message is by Father Ron Baird. It's about the, the parable of the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coins, and, and is oftentimes quoted. And, and on its surface, it looks fairly simple. I mean, you know, the guy loses his sheep and he's really happy that he gets the sheep back because the sheep was lost, or the woman loses her coin and is really happy. But you really have to dig down deeper into it to, to see the setting and what's going on to realize why this was a, a dramatic kind of thing to have happen and what Jesus is really getting at. The, the, the preposition of the story is that Jesus was starting to draw large crowds of people who were um, not of exactly um, upstanding character. Um, they were sinners prostitutes, tax collectors, the kind of people that you don't want your children running around with. And so the Pharisees, who were sort of the religious establishment of the day, really thought that it was highly inappropriate for a guy who would call himself a rabbi to be mingling with such riffraff, you know, and that he was bringing a bad name upon God because he was hanging out with sinners. And so they were grumbling about this. And in order to help them to understand a little bit about why it was the right thing to do. Jesus chooses to tell them this parable. Now, I can say I identify with Jesus in this somewhat because, oh, about 22, 23 years ago, I got a phone call from my bishop when I was in West Virginia saying, Ron, what is going on in West Virginia? I mean, in in Point Pleasant. And I went, nothing. (laughs) It was a small town of 5,000 people. Not much ever went on there. They had that Mothman thing, but that was a long time before I got there. Um, And nobody believed it anyway. The, um, but here, I said, what, what do you mean what's going on? And he said, well, I've got this anonymous letter from someone telling me that you're hanging out three and four nights a week at, a, at bars. He says, are you doing that? And I went, well, sort of. <laughs> and he went, sort of? I said, well, actually, it's not a bar. It's the American Legion post, and they do have a bar in it. Um, and that's where I've been. He said, and you're going there three or four nights a week and getting drunk? I said, whoa. I said, I didn't say I was getting drunk. I said, I don't even like alcohol that much. I mean, have you ever seen me drunk? He goes, no. I said, I don't like to drink that much. And if I did get drunk, I'd get deathly ill. So I don't want to do it because it's not fun. And so he goes, well, then what are you doing hanging out at the bars? I said, that's where the unchurched people are. He went, what? I said, that's where the people who don't go to church are. He said, so you're telling me you go to a bar to talk about Jesus? I said, yeah. He said, have you actually had any of these conversations? I said, yeah, I've had more of them there than I have in church. <laughs> they actually were interested. And he said, really? I said, yeah. And he said, so then he decided they wanted to start coming to church or anything? I said, yeah, we picked up two or three families from there. He went, well, keep up the good work. <laughs> I never did find out who wrote that letter either. I always wondered about that. But, um, apparently it wasn't appropriate for their rector to be seen in seemly places with people consuming alcoholic beverages. It could be dangerous. But very often as the church, we do get our backup about righteousness. And, you know, we're, we're the goody people. You know, we're the ones who are on the straight and narrow, always doing the good stuff. And even those of us who acknowledge that we have been sinners don't really want to acknowledge that we're doing any particular ones right now. You know, they were all in the past and we've recovered from those, thankfully, even though we know that's not true. And so Jesus tells these parables to help them understand that. 
And while on the surface of the parables may look very simple, they're actually not at all. Number one, he says to the Pharisees, mind you, which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and one was lost, would not leave 99 of them in the wilderness to go look for the one? Well, he's already started off on the wrong foot. Shepherds in, in, in this Hebrew society were sort of the lowest class of people in existence. They were considered riffraff, and not only that, but they smell. Because they, they smell like sheep. <laughs> I mean, and, and they're not, they're uneducated. They don't go to synagogue. They don't go to temple. They don't do anything. And oftentimes they end up being robbers or something too. And so shepherds were not considered very popular. They were kind of the low life of it. And for him to compare the Pharisee to the shepherd was something that, that would get them riled up right off the bat. How dare he? And on top of that, they never raised sheep in their life. You know, they were scholars. They didn't do stuff like that. So even if you just look at the beginning of it, they were probably offended. But then it goes on even further. What he asked them is, which one of you, if one of them was lost, would not leave 99 in the wilderness? Now, what happens if you leave 99 in the wilderness? Eat by wolves, wander off themselves, and get lost. I mean, and so the chances are what they would have said was, well, nobody in their right mind would do that. <laughs> I mean, why would you go after one and lose 99 of them? That's crazy. Nobody would do that. And yet he goes even further. He says, and when you have found that sheep, will you not drape him across your shoulders and rejoice? Now give me a break. I realize that all the manger scenes have this, you know, the shepherd with the lamb around his shoulders and it always looks so cute and all. But if you had a sheep that wandered off on you and you had to go looking for it out in the wilderness, do you think that the, your real first thing was, I'm going to put this sheep around my neck and carry him home? It'd be more like, I'm going to grab him by the scruff of his neck and drag him home because <laughs> he's lucky I came to get him at all. But this guy's celebrating. And if that weren't enough, when he gets home with the sheep, now where are the 99? They're in the wilderness still, yeah. When he gets home, he's going to call all of his neighbors and say, hey, I lost this sheep and I found it. Let's have a party. <laughs> now, that's what you all do, isn't it? Anytime you lose your keys or something and you find them, you go call up all your neighbors, say, come on over, <laughs> I found my keys. And they're probably incredulous about that. Why in the world is he doing that? And then the same thing with the woman with the lost coin. You know, she's persistent and diligent until she finally finds this coin. Now, nobody knows she's lost the coin. And until she goes and tells everybody in the neighborhood about it. I mean, just like you all do. Every time you find something you've lost, you, know, you lost a sock, you find it, you go knock on the next door neighbor's house to let them know about how happy you are about it. So to the Pharisees, it makes no sense. Why is he telling this story? I mean, I mean it, it, it's not logical. You know, nobody would do these things. It makes no sense at all. But that's exactly why he's telling the story, because what he wants to ask them and us is, why would someone do that? What would cause someone to leave 99 to go after one? Hmm? Great love, yeah. Apparently, even that one is so vital and important to him that he can't bear the thought of losing the sheep. And what he's trying to do is help them to understand what God is like. God does not value us because of our productivity. I know it's hard to believe in America these days, but it's true. God doesn't really care 
about our productivity. Because if you think about it, it does make some sense, because does God really need us to be productive, or could he just kind of go and have it done? I mean, it'd be a whole lot easier probably if he did it himself, really. But So he's not interested in our productivity, nor honestly is he all that concerned with our righteousness, except for to the extent that it helps us to restore what it is that's been lost. And so that's why he's willing to say there is more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who has repented than for 99 righteous people who don't need it. Because God sees us as lost. People who need to be found. And he loves us. And he's more interested in that relationship than he is in all of our productivity. And he's willing to sacrifice anything so that we could be found again. Isn't that essentially the message of the cross? Is that Jesus is willing to give his very life so that we can find a way home again? Now, it then lends to the question, why is it that it's so hard for the church to get a reputation of being that kind of loving group? You know, we, I don't think most people think of us that way. They think of us as judgmental. They think of us as, at best, a bunch of goody two-shoes who think they've got their act together. You know, they don't see us as being people who are loving and loving to a fault. They see us as people who want to tell the rest of the world how to live and what they ought to do. And yet, God isn't that way. God isn't that way now. I mean, God knows how we ought to live, and he's even willing to tell us this is the way that this would work well. What does he do if we don't do it? Does he come down and make you? Does he give you a time out? No. He tries to find a way to get us found again. Because he doesn't see us as bad. And that's part of the problem with religion in general. Um, I've often thought we should declassify Christianity as a religion. It's not really a religion in the classic sense of the word. It's a relationship with the one who made us. Because the, the truth is, is that when God sees sinners, he doesn't see bad people. I mean, he's the one who made them. And he, he doesn't see them as bad people. He sees them as people who are lost. He even says this on a cross. When, when he's about to die, he says, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They're lost. They, 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 they have no clue. But it's not a, a judgment, you bad, evil person. It's about, they need help. And I want to help them. Well, if God chooses to do that, and he's given us the ministry of being his ambassadors, is that not what our call is too? Is to begin to see the lost as not bad, but, but lost. People need to be found. Now, if you were lost, what would you hope somebody would do? Well, let me rephrase that. If you're a man, you can't be lost. Because we're not lost when we're lost. So. <laughs> I always tell Judy that. She'll go, do you know where you are? I said, yes, I'm on planet Earth. And she goes, can you narrow that down? I go, sure, we're in the Northern Hemisphere. She goes, how about a little more? I said, all right, we're in the United States of America. And she'll go, how about a little more now? I said, we're in Ohio. And she'll go, a little better yet. And I go, you're really pushing this. I figure you got to show up somewhere, right? When you're lost, you want somebody to care that you're lost. I remember a couple of years ago, we went to uh, New York City for a day, which was my one and God willing only visit to New York City. Um, 
if you've ever been to New York City, you probably either love it or hate it. <laughs> I'm one of those people who hates it. It's, and it's not that they're bad or anything, it's that it's sensory overload. I mean, we took a bus from a hotel near the Meadowlands in New Jersey into Grand Central Station. And we got off the bus, and when I get out into Grand Central Station and look around, I look, I must look just like some guy from Central Ohio who'd never been in a big city. Because, I mean, I was like, I had no idea where to go. Which way do I go to get out of here? I mean, it's huge. And there's, there, there are thousands of people in there. I mean, it was unbelievable. And it was loud. And I was just like, oh my goodness, what have I done? And so after spending a day there, I can honestly say that uh, John and I had, had spent enough time for eternity. Um, and Judy seemed to enjoy it, but, but we were shell-shocked. Because I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was totally out of my element. And, and what was amazing is I always heard that New Yorkers were rude, but that's actually not true at all. Matter of fact, as I'm standing here trying to figure out from a map how I get out of Grand Central Station over to Times Square, which isn't very far, I might add. Um, then this guy standing behind the security booth comes out and he says, you look like you're lost. Can I help you? And I said, oh, please. <laughs> and he said, where are you trying to go? I said, I just want to get to Times Square right now. And he goes, oh, okay, we can do that. And so he says, I want you to go down there and you get to get there and you're going to go down those steps. And when you get down the steps, you're going to take a right. And you're going to go all the way down to the end of that. And then you're going to be some doors going outside. And you want to go out those doors. When you get out, turn left. Oh, okay, I can do that. And, and I did. It was wonderful. I mean, I was lost and, and he found me. And the only problem was is that once I got out of Grand Central Station, I was lost all over again. Um, I will tell you, if you go to New York City, make sure you have somebody with you who knows where they're going. <laughs> it's not like you can stand on the sidewalk and look at a map. Um, if you do, you will get run over. Because <laughs> there are so many people there that they just keep coming in waves. You know, you can't stop. There's no place to go. I guess you go on the middle of the street. <laughs> That'd be about it. So I was very glad to find out that actually a lot of New Yorkers were helpful. Perhaps that's because we look as lost as we are, but they actually were very helpful getting us to where we need to go. When you're lost, you need somebody to find you, not tell you that you're stupid because you're lost. I mean, I, I kind of already knew that part. I was already lost, but I needed help finding out where it was that I was trying to go because I didn't know how to get there from here. And that's the way God sees sinners. It's not as bad people, but as people who really don't, they're lost. They don't know how to get to where they need to go. You know, and they're oblivious. And he wants us to have that same heart for the lost. But all too often, I fear that we don't. All too often, we tend to see people who are on drugs or alcohol or whatever, and they have problems. You go, well, you know, they made their bed, they can lie in it. That's their problem. We don't see them as lost, we see them as bad. And even if we don't do that, we'll tend to do things like say, well, the church is open, anybody can come in. It's not like we make you take a test before we let you in here. So they know where we are, they can come by anytime they want to. Imagine the shepherd doing that. Well, that sheep knows where we are, he knows what field he wandered out to, he can come back anytime he wants to. <laughs> I mean, what would that accomplish? See, God doesn't work that way. See, God isn't satisfied just for us to be lost and to have a way that we could be not lost, but what he really wants is to go find us. St. Paul talks about that in his epistle to Timothy today when he talks about that he was the, fir the foremost of all sinners, but God found him. He wasn't looking for God. God found him. And I can tell you in my own life, when, I, when God found me, I wasn't looking for him. 
you know, he, he came to me. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God. I just didn't really care one way or another. Didn't give it a whole lot of thought. When he found me, he sought me out. And later in my life, when my mother, who was an alcoholic, um, had um, severe cirrhosis of the liver and was uh, put into a hepatic coma, um, for which she had already gone into brain damage and things, so uh, she was going to die. And um, we went in one day, and she's awake, and she was healed and never drank again. Ever. And she asked me one time, she said, why would God do that for me? And I said, well, because he loves you. She said, but I don't deserve it. I did all this to myself. You know, there are a lot of people out there who deserve it a whole lot more than me. Why would he do it for me? I said, well, Mom, I guess it's because you were lost. And he didn't want you to be lost. He wanted you to be found. So he came looking for you. See, that's who God is. He's not someone who's satisfied just to say, well, folks, I'm here if you need anything. He's a God who wants to come find us and to bring us home so that we can rejoice. And if we are going to be the church of God, if we're going to be his ambassadors, we have to learn to have that kind of heart for the lost. When was the last time you were walking through the mall or anywhere and thinking about the lost people that might be there? I'd wager probably never <laughs> or not a long time. I have the same problem. It becomes real easy just to get busy, doesn't it? You know, and we don't see that. We only see what we need to get done and how whatever they're doing is impacting us. You know, to contrast the story from New York, last night, Judy and I were over church getting things ready for this morning. And on the way home, he had stopped at Kroger's to pick up a couple of things. So I dropped her off right in front of the doors at Kroger's. And as she started to go, I rolled down the window. I said, hey, I want you to get, and I told her what I wanted. And so she had stopped and turned around. And, and she said, do you know what happened after you rolled up the window? And I said, what? She said, the guy in the car behind you who was waiting says, really? <laughs> I thought, Gee, that must have taken 20 seconds out of his life. <laughs> it was fairly severe. But in reality, aren't we all kind of like that? We only see what's in front of us and what we need and what has to happen. Because we tend to value people more for their productivity than we do for the relationships. What would it be like if we saw homeless people, not as people who are drug addicts or schizophrenics, mentally ill or alcoholics? Or What if we saw them as people who are lost? How would we treat them differently if we did that? How would it be if we saw criminals as not as bad people who ought to be punished, but as people who are lost? They don't seem to have a clue how to live the human life. How would we respond to them differently if we did that? Because that's what he's calling us to do, is to have a heart for the lost. Not just to be okay with them if they want to show up, but to go look for them. Seek them out. Help them to be found. Because the truth is, is if, if you aren't lost, you don't have a clue what it's like. And all too often we convince ourselves that we're not. If you really want to develop a heart for the lost, it's going to require one primary thing from you. It's the same thing that I told you about and the same thing that Paul told you about in the letter day. You have to decide that you are the foremost of sinners. Because somebody will actually listen to you if you approach them from not self-righteousness or you're doing this all wrong and you need to do it right you know and what's the matter with you you're messing up your life but if you approach them and say you know i used to do stupid stuff like that too and and man that hurts something and now when i still do it it still hurts all of a sudden you're somebody who understands and you're somebody who cares 
And when you understand and care, they're much more likely to want to listen. So what did you do? How is it that you're not dealing with it anymore? I mean, how did that work? And when that finally happens, when you finally realize that you are a sinner who is lost and are willing to admit that to people and talk to them about it, suddenly you have the opportunity to share with them good news. There is no good news in telling somebody that they're a sinner. The good news is when you can tell them how to get grace to overcome it. But if you've never experienced that, how would you share it? How would you know? What would you have to say? And so it requires us to dig deep down in our hearts and take off these facades that we put on and quit pretending. You know, I realize that I don't commit the same sins that I committed 40 years ago or 30 years ago even. I probably couldn't commit the same sins I committed 30 years ago. But But that doesn't mean that the ones that I have now are any less deadly. It just means that they're the new ones I'm struggling with. And God willing, when I finally arrive at the pearly gates, I'll I'll be in much better shape. There was a a joke I read online last night. You may have heard it before. It's pretty good, though. But this uh, preacher dies. He'd been 25 years. He'd been the, the, the senior pastor at this church. Uh, preaching his big congregation and all, and he dies and he goes before the pearly gates. And in front of him is this guy with a really loud Hawaiian shirt on and some blue jean torn cutoffs and sandals and sunglasses. And so St. Peter's talking to this guy. First he says, okay, what's your name? He says, my name's Tom Smith. He says, what did you do for a living, Tom Smith? He says, I was a cab driver. He goes, oh, okay. He said, well, here, here's a golden robe for you to put on. Here's a nice golden uh, crook for you to carry around. And, you know, anywhere you want to go, it's all open for you. And so the preacher's going, wow, heaven's a pretty cool place. You know, they're going to let somebody like that do that. And so he goes up and he says, what's your name? My name's Joe Snow. He said, what did you do, Joe? And he said, well, you know, I was the pastor of this church for 25 years. I preached every Sunday. I preached the gospel to the people there. He said, okay, here's a cotton, plain cotton uh, robe for you. And here's a wooden crook in case you need some help walking. He goes, wait a minute. How come that guy's getting the gold stuff and I'm getting like cotton and, and just a walking stick? And he goes, well, you need to understand, um, for 25 years, you preached and people slept. And for 25 years, he drove and they prayed. <laughs> so which one was doing the work of the Lord, right? It becomes easy for us to convince ourselves that we're doing the work of the Lord. But are we really? Because the truth is, if you don't have a heart for lost people, if you don't see them differently, you never will. That's why Jesus is willing to say that there will be more rejoicing among the angels over the sinner who repents. And the reason for that is simple, is that repentance doesn't mean what we've turned it into. We tend to think of repentance means stop doing that stupid stuff and act right. That's not what repentance means at all. But repentance is the word is actually metanoia in the Greek. What it literally means is that you see it differently. You ever seen those Optical illusions that if you look at it one way, you see one thing, you look at it another way, you see something else. That's metanoia. You see things differently. And so what happens when you're lost and you're found is you suddenly see it differently. You know where you're going. You know, you know what it is, how it is you're supposed to be there. That's what God rejoices at. That's what the angels rejoice at. Not just that you're righteous now, but that you actually get it. And so if you're, if you're already righteous, but you don't get it and still really don't know where you're going, you're just following all the rules. Well, what good was that? It didn't accomplish anything. 
So for us to have a heart for the lost, we've got to be able to begin to see things differently. We have to see things not from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. We've got to see that homeless person, that drug addict, that criminal, uh, the way that God sees them as the one who made them. And when we begin to do that, then maybe we might be able to go and share some good news with them. But if all we can do is put everybody in society in a pecking 